Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast in your Week in Sports Cars listener Q&A episode. He's Graham Goodwin. I'm Marshall Pruitt. We handle Q's and A's covering IMSA, the World Endurance Championship, ELMS, Asian Le Mans Series. Uh, We handle questions that fall into general. We fall into fun category. We do vintage. We do a wide variety of things here on the show brought to us by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Before we get going, Graham, before you as the official selector of categories, before we do all that, tell folks where you are and what you're doing because it's kind of uh, absolutely. racy. Uh, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm in uh, Lagos, which is just outside Portimao in Portugal for the finale of the European Le Series, the Le Mans Cup, uh, with the award ceremony due to take place on Sunday evening, just before I head off into the night uh, back via Lisbon and back to London very briefly and head off to Bahrain for the doubleheader that will finish the WEC season finale. Uh, It's a packed month, if you like, isn't it, Uh, uh, MP of endurance racing. ELMS, followed by WEC, followed by WEC again, followed by Petit Le Mans all in the next four weeks. So it's going to be a busy old time uh, for you and for me and for everybody involved in all of those events, and I'm sure for our listeners too, in trying to keep up with all of that and send us the usual excellent crop of questions that we can get get stuck into and try to unpick uh, the what's, why's, wherefores, who's and when's of endurance racing around the world. And there's certainly a hell of a lot going on. Look out for news. Uh, But there's some great news today. Uh, I think you are the first person to have spoken on the record to Roger Penske, are you not, MP, about uh, the involvement of Penske uh, in the 2022 FIAWC. So that's absolutely brand new news today on racer.com. There will be a lot of news in the days to come uh, with Daily Sports Car. We'll share some of that with uh, our friends at Racer and, by the way, with our friends at Endurance Info, French language websites, on some new takers, particularly in P2 and in P3 uh, for the coming season, the 2022 season in the European Le Mans Series and the FI World Endurance Championship with a number of new teams likely to hit the track next year. But all of that to come in the next few days. Beautiful. Well, where do we start? Well, we started with IMSA last week, and we traditionally start with uh, either IMSA or WEC, Aslam's, Elms and ACO. And we're going to bust away from that because we've got a bumper bundle of questions in the Hair Ganaral uh, area oh. about a completely different uh, race. And that's going to be the SRO, the IGTC's race, the Indianapolis Eight Hours. We're a week later, uh, just simply because of the way that the, the timing of the podcast is falling at the moment. But to, uh, we've got a number of people wanting to look back at what was round two of the IGTC at your beloved Indianapolis Motor Speedway MP. Isn't it the world's um, beloved? It should be. If there are folks you, outside of the U.S. who don't love it, they're probably from outer space. I, I'll be honest with you, I've never heard of it until, okay, um, until SRO, SRO turned up. It was <laughs> the first time I'd seen it. I was wondering, lots of seats there. But it must. I thought college basketball, maybe. Um, but apparently it's a track um, and some racing goes on there. But uh, I think you told me about that already. 
So Indianapolis Eight Hours, the second time that the IGTC has visited thereafter, was it two or three non-too-successful races at Laguna Seca? Yes. Um, last year, somewhat affected by weather, this year had its own particular batch of challenges. And I think there were there were two or three things that, that kind of impacted on this MP. And we'll get into the questions in a moment. One was certainly some oddity in terms of the behavior of race control and the application of regulations. Two was, I'll be blunt, the bits that I saw, there were some dog-awful driving standards in that in that field. And three was the general tone of some of the coverage that emerged from that. Uh, so in terms of what we've got from our dear readers and, and questioners... Why don't I... Snyder, uh, yeah, let me fire in a couple here to you. So our pal Lance Snyder, our podcast official minister of mirth, uh, he says, Excellent. is there any truth to the rumor? And he uses mm-hmm. O-U-R. I love it. He, he's fully That's stuck great. in, despite being from the American state of Georgia. Uh, any truth to the rumour that the SRO eight hours at IMS was really just the debut of a new race control um, improv show titled, improv. Who, yes, whose regs are they anyways? Where the rules are made up and ramifications don't matter. Yeah, right. Okay. I think there's a degree here where there's a question or two to be answered by race control. And there's a degree or two where having dug into this at some, uh, in some depth, uh, there are a number of issues that were, uh, how can you put this, put out into the public domain that I am told very clearly were covered off in driver briefings prior to the race. Uh, things like the wave-by thing, which does seem to be a little bit more fluid of an interpretation than perhaps we're used to. Um, but race organisers tell me, and kept a straight face while they were doing it, um, that they were happy that for the most part, the decisions that were made reflected both the regulations and or the instructions that were given in driver's briefing before the start of that race. It did, though, come together I think, as Lance is uh, implying, to be a quite a difficult race to love, um, to keep a kind of rhythm up to. It was an awful lot of uh, caution periods involved in that one. And it, that they were not the quickest in explaining some of those decisions, which I know irked a lot of people who were watching. It clearly irked uh, the, the rather smaller number of people who were there uh, on site, uh, watching both trackside and the media room. Uh, and all in all, there's some learning points that come out of that race. The, the good part of it, MP, is this. Having spoken, as I say, to senior people involved in running of that race, they're under no illusions that were learning points to come from this. And I already know, uh, with the, the brief kind of run-through of um, actions arising, if you like, points arising from the from the 2021, uh, 2021 race, that some important changes will be put in place to help that uh, flow of information and communication internally and externally, which can only be a very good thing. It's it's not been a strength of SR America in the last two or three years. I know they're looking to improve things, and I hope that's the case. You know, we we want to love big endurance races at the biggest venues and joking aside of course the indianapolis motor speedway is one of the very biggest on the planet we want to be able to love those races and we'll have to just wait and see um the the way in which sr america 
Uh, and by the way, the IGTC uh, guys uh, that are trying to get this this uh, significant intercontinental uh, series of races back underway after the challenges of COVID. And you, you, Indy comes up a lot in the questions we've got, not, not least of which, you know, is Roger Penske looking to maybe put IMSA uh, racing back into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway? It's a beloved place for anybody that loves motorsports around the world, not just uh, people who love IndyCar, but people who love motorsport. It's one of the most significant uh, places on the planet for, uh, for our sport. And here's a credible idea at trying to bring a new market to one of those venues why wouldn't you want it all right well i'm gonna have you continue to grab a few more while i hit the mute button and then go grab a small no, grocery no delivery my wife has uh, had come to the door um, oh that's perfectly fine well I'll, I'll crack on with that when you go off and do that thing so the next one and it's uh, there's a number here about indy carl hb donnelly says so the calamigla uh, uh, incident in indianapolis what's your opinion he thought the GT4 car was extremely non-committal on its line and speed, but thought Callum made the less than optimal move to the outside. Race was shaping up for quite a finish. Too bad it ended in a collection of safety cars, collisions, and penalties instead. I, I mean, I looked at it. You look at it again. You kind of—it's one of those weird ones where I was talking to a to a colleague about that incident, and it's like that. It's like that scene in the comedy movie where you've got the spaceship with the big red button that you're not supposed to press don't press the red button don't press the red button and it seemed to me that callum was just drawn in to the wrong decision and once committed he just kept being drawn into it it became a kind of visual nightmare really didn't it um i don't think aston martin did a darn thing wrong i think he stayed well out of the way i think he felt he communicated his intention to stay out of the way i think callum committed to the wrong line into and through that corner and involved himself in his own accident. It was a huge mistake without a shadow of a doubt from uh, a young man who I have zero doubts is going to play a very significant part in the future of motorsports. They all make them. They all make mistakes. This one was perhaps a little bit more cartoon amble and comedic. I'm sure he didn't find it funny. And for those that aren't following um, what was going on here? This was the car leading the race, and you know, young uh, Ferrari blessed star uh, UK's Calamella, um managing, looking to go to the outside of a GT4 car into turn one. The gap closed and closed and closed with acres of space to the inside. Callum clearly looking to avoid diving up the inside and suffering the car crossing in, uh, cutting into 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 his bowels. But he, he basically sort of created his own incident. So. Am I criticising him? Yeah. I think, you know, the accident wouldn't have happened if Callum hadn't gone for the gap that wasn't there. Um, I understand why it happened. I think there's a degree of experience required here of dealing with traffic. He's had some experience of that, but not a lot with GT4 traffic. Um, he'd clearly been coached and warned to be wary of cars that would have a pro-am driver lineup but i'm not going to attribute any blame whatsoever for that incident to the aston martin which was the entirely the innocent party um you know we could say it was obvious that Callum needed to get there first he possibly pulled up braked a little too early but i think in doing that he was trying to give the space that Callum decided not to go for so 
one of those things you just get drawn in and drawn in and a what seemed at the, the time a sensible solution to a cornering problem in traffic became less and less of a viable one to the point where it, it, it just became inevitable that that collision was going to happen. It was quite a tough one to watch. Luckily, not too violent a collision, but ended the race for what had been the leading car. John Schultz, Johnny Trotz uh, on Twitter, says, what's your take on the mid-race rule changes at the Indianapolis eight hours? <sighs> I don't like a single source for these things. The the so-called mid-race uh, mid uh, rule change, I am told, was communicated to the drivers and the teams in the pre-race briefing. And what can you do? Uh, I wasn't in that room uh, for that briefing. Uh, the powers that be that look after that race tell me that they're very clear that that was actually raised. Was there a degree of... Um, was the degree of blurred lines around that? perfectly possible it seems certainly that some some teams of drivers were surprised by that and maybe that was a fault of the clarity of communication from uh, race control but I, i'm absolutely not convinced that this was a case of uh, a an event for many that was spoiled by too many incidents too much contact too much uncertainty lack of rhythm and entirely unconvinced that you can look at that situation across this eight-hour race and say that was all on one side of the argument it absolutely fundamentally wasn't there was some poor driving some poor decision making throughout the events uh, from some pro drivers as well as some of the am drivers there may very well have been some poor decisions coming out of race control and some confusion about you know regulation um it perhaps isn't that surprising, bearing in mind there were two races running at the same time for the first three hours, for starters. Uh, but that perhaps the, the, that some of the communication of those, both those regulations and some of the decisions wasn't as rapid and as clear as it, it, it might have been. But I guess what you've got to say here is, what are we going to do? We're going to damn this race and that series forever because of some, some actual and perceived mistakes? Or do you give people credit for putting their hands up and saying, there's some areas there where we could do better, and let's try and do that with the next IGTC race, which, by the way, is just in a few weeks' time at Kyulami. And when the race tries to get a little bit more momentum next year at Indianapolis, I tend to go for the latter. I think they've had their nose bloodied quite enough uh, for one year. Uh, Debbie Impeachment, thoughts on this year's eight, Indy 8 Hours and where it could improve in, in coming years. Better communication, an effort to actually draw, um, I think, better media coverage for that race. I thought, by the way, the commentary team, great to hear uh, Bob Barsha's voice. Um, we've got Calvin Fish and Mar Ryan Marine, who I think is very much a coming man in the international um, uh, insurance racing commentary uh, teams and great to hear a younger American voice uh, leading a team like that as he did by the way uh, very ably at the Spa 24 Hours and I know he's beginning to get uh, as very many people in commentary do his own kind of uh, fans uh, people who like his style like the tone of voice and he's I think every reason to to celebrate that. Uh, some positives from a couple of people coming out of the Indy 8 Hours. Nicholas Cahoot says he's trying to focus on some positives. How cool was it to have the likes of Pippa Mann, Connor Daly and Jack Hawks with a GT4 feel? Very positive. Um, don't think the GT4 feel got 
enough attention, enough credit for the depth they managed to get into a kind of reasonably perfectly formed, what was it, something like 12 or 13 car field. Um, GT4 has got a place in a number of these races in the future. It's not, uh, of course, a class that you will see in at the Spa 24 Hours. One of the nice things I think about the IGTC is it's not all the same cars and all the same teams and all those races. There is some difference. There is some local interest, in this case, some star quality as well. And it gave an opportunity for some of the storylines to emerge from that race that perhaps you wouldn't have got in other um, races simply in the US or, for that matter, some of the intercontinental races elsewhere on the planet. Um, where else have we got? Uh, Nikolai B, whatever else we may think of the Indy 8 Hours. Isn't it great to see four women racing with four different teams as well? Yes. Now, here's here's the other kind of parallel here. Lots of conversations at the moment about the two alternative uh, ways of trying to get more diversity into racing, and in my case, our case, endurance racing. Every likelihood that we're going to see uh, more all-female driver crews in some of the series that we all know and love, uh, but equally well, more and more people now talking about an active movement to encourage teams to think about integrating more female drivers into their regular lineup. In other words, let's see some really competent, some really professional, and for that matter, some aspirant professional uh, female drivers getting into um, race cars as part of the team with their male counterparts. So, um, Doug Holtzman, uh, who does say, as I just mentioned, Doug, um, hearing Bob Varsh from the booth, great to hear him again. Uh, he says, thanks to you and I, uh, Marshall, for all we uh, doing for uh, adding rather to sports car racing. It was indeed a bright, uh, bright spot to hear Bob Varsh back in the booth. Hope we hear a, bit, a lot more of him. He is one of the dons, isn't he, of... Um, uh, well, it's just sports broadcasting, full stop. And by the way, from the very first moment I met Bob, what an absolute diamond, what an absolute gentleman and generous with, you know, both his comments and his praise uh, for, th- for things that he's heard and, and read uh, from a number of people involved. You know, he's a very po- positive part of the, the world's sports car community. And that love, I can tell you, goes way beyond your shores. Uh, Doug. Uh, so that's that for the Indy 8 Hours. There's one other question that Come comes on. Under. Did I miss a lot of fun, by the way, while, while I was putting away we talked, uh, frozen we talked bits? A, we, we talked a lot about you, mate. It All wasn't right. good. I won't listen back, because yes, I don't need to cry leading into the weekend. No. So James Counter says, what was the biggest surprise with the driver rankings? We've had the provisional FI driver rankings issued this week. Huge number of changes. Hashtag me personally, says James. Seeing Olivier Panis on there was a shock, given his mo- uh, moments of fame was from before he was born. Any good driver ranking decisions? Who should he, who should be flinging poo at the FIA? Um, there were a lot of them this year. Uh, the That's not a surprise, because they... they um, told us they were restricting changes last year because of the constrained calendar post-COVID. There are a lot of very unhappy people, I can tell you in the panic that I'm in uh, this week, Uh, but I think in some of the cases there's reasonably fair comments on some of those changes. It's pretty clear the FIA are running to catch up with where some of the series are that use those rankings, and that includes IMSA, it includes SRO, it includes the ACO series. And I expect we're going to hear more from the ACO on driver rankings in the same way we have from SRO fairly imminently. Um, there's one 
I'll mention it now, and I sort of cringe as I do. Um, I'm pretty certain, by the way, Olivier Panis uh, was regraded because I think he's hit on the age bars. Mm. So, certain age bars you come down. So that we've now got a situation where JJ Leto, I think, is now a bronze. I mean, I heard about some other, a few other ones that are the cr- interesting. The cringy one. The cringy one is I don't think it was very smart of the FIA to include the age-related um, downgrading of Alex and Ardy on that list. I think that was pretty poor judgment on their part. Um, beyond that, there's a lot going on. Uh, there is a lot more that I can currently say about some background discussions uh, within ACO, LMEM, about what they intend to do, uh, about uh, trying to ensure that the spirit as well as the, the letter of the law in their regulations about driver gradings is respected. Uh, I'll say again what my view is. I think the FIA have been a bit asleep at the wheel here. I think a massive opportunity, by the way, Marshall, was missed uh, when the world was in lockdown, where lots of things that didn't require people to be together in one place that could have been done remotely and certainly there was space to do it when we weren't racing could have been attended to and this is one of them that you could have had a fulsome review linked in with the relevant um, regulations and that's a key part of this debate because if you're going to reform a driver ranking system you also need to, to, to look at how that's reflecting the regulations we had the better part of six months where the governing body here had the opportunity to say, here's an opportunity to do some of that housekeeping that otherwise we're too busy uh, with around racing happening. There was no racing happening. I I struggled to see why we didn't have an opportunity to at least get that process started. And I think they've missed that window. I think what's going to happen now is that that, um, that, that system is going to be most respected in people more or less ignoring it or trying to work around it. And I think what we're heading for is a bit of a mess, is the straight answer. But I'm not really sure that the likes of SRO, the likes of LMBM, and whether or not IMSA, um, because we do know there's been some uh, some decisions made there in the past around driver rankings too, that we could feasibly find ourselves in a situation where we've got drivers with multiple programs and that governing bodies or organising bodies have different opinions about their suitability and their ranking depending on which race they're in and that just doesn't make any sense um, so for me if i'm going to hand out a brick bat that brick bat is going to the fia uh, because they could have and should have acted on this not weeks and months ago but years ago but there was a glaring opportunity to do so uh, in the early to middle part part of 2020 and I can't believe it's not on their housekeeping list as we need to fix this system. The rules, and in particular the marketplace, have moved on. There is nothing else on the um, on the lips of people in sports car racing in Europe right now other than two things. One is, how do we keep the drivers that we are getting either talent and or money from in a seat in this hugely complex web of regulation? And two... Where do we find somebody that gets under the radar as a bronze or a silver driver? That can't be a healthy way to run a business. It can't be. I think you're. I long. think you're overlooking 
something pretty big here, Graham, and I think you have failed to recognize something worthy of, of praise and appreciation, and that is the FIA's ability, like an amazing multi-year endurance race, to piss a lot of people off no matter what they do with driver ratings. I mean, I just I don't think you've given full appreciation for their unwavering it's, ability to piss people off. So um, you need to maybe look at yourself and ask some hard questions about yourself and why you can't appreciate <laughs> their ability to cause hatred and uh, joblessness. Here's, here's the, the other point here is we know that this list can be flawed. We know that they can miss their own rules. We know, for instance, that in the year where he... Um, became uh, a Porsche factory driver, and I think the year in which he won Le Mans, Earl Bamba started that year as a silver. Well, the, yeah, that, but that's, he, that's as high of... as he should go, though, right? I mean, he's not particularly <laughs> good. I think we can all agree that Earl Bamba, oh, skating by, you know, how is he not a bronze? Wow. Yeah, but, I mean, we've got others. I mean, others, for instance, I was talking to one particular driver, and it wouldn't be fair to name him. But he's someone who's ra- is, is rated currently as a bronze, will go to silver. That will be the end of his career, by the way, uh, because he is not of any uh, – it doesn't bring money. He is a, you know, a career uh, driver in terms of the way in which he conducts himself on track. But he has a full-time job. And as he explained to me, and uh, we had a little bit of a giggle about something that's not terribly, uh, terribly fun. He says, I literally do 60 to 80 hours a week in my day job. I come and do this on six or seven weekends a year. And he says, and as you can see, he said, pointing to his, I have to say, rather full frame. I don't even get a chance to do any training. Um, and, and as he also says, I can tell you that this, this assessment is correct. We went through exactly this position uh, last year where he had to appeal successfully not to go from bronze to silver. Um, nothing has changed in, the, uh, in either the, uh, the cars he's driving, the championship he's driving in, other than the fact that he is now a little slower than he was a year on. And others have got quicker. So why, having successfully appealed on the basis that he inevitably will appeal again this year, um, have they ignored the fact that they upheld an appeal and gone with their original conclusions from last year? I don't understand that mentality. If, if you're in the same car with the same team in the same championship and your abilities, and I agree with him, by the way, I know the figures, uh, and he's not quicker. He is marginally slower than he was. How is it possible to come to a, a conclusion that a successful appeal was wrong? I, I don't get it. And uh, Look, no system is perfect. This is the kind of system because of the impact it has on individuals and teams, and let's face it, the business of racing that is more likely to be criticized than others. But I just think we're at the stage where I know there's commissions and God knows what else. Um, we should be at the stage now where perhaps it's time not for SRO and ACO and IMSA and anybody else that's involved in this reckoning to lose patience with it and feel they have to come up with their own conclusions. But surely it's time 
for something of a summit conference. And you know what? If we're going to do that, let's break the habit of a lifetime and let's invite the people along to that summit conference who are directly affected by this, the teams and the drivers, gentlemen drivers, aspirant pro drivers, full pro drivers, people like Joey Hand, I know we've mentioned a number of times on the show, that finds himself in a position where he can't escape um, the, the the lack of opportunity that is now offered because of his lofty driving um, uh, grade. I, another colleague actually approached me today asking for advice and who he might actually speak to on behalf of another driver who is a platinum grade driver that genuinely has not been in a championship winning car or in a top line uh, series in a championship winning car for something like two decades but he's not quite yet at that position where he starts to hit the kind of the downward button uh, which is age related you know punish if, if you like starting too young it needs a root and branch reform it just does it needs to be more relevant to the realities of the industry which it is or rather the industry and the sport which it is designed to serve and it fundamentally isn't doing that because it's forcing that sport and that industry that services that sport into searches and behaviors that are not conducive to respecting the spirit of that system it, it you know, the regulations and the driver ranking system need to be fit for purpose. And right now, what you've got is this odd dance around trying to find the, the shortest route through it um, with the latest 16-year-old supercarter um, you know, who's being measured for, in performance against, with absolute respect to some of my friends in the paddock, people who are at times uh, even slightly less slim than I am, um, who are doing this as a passion and funding it uh, as gentlemen drivers are supposed to. Um, it, it's got to change. And I'm hoping that they, they will see the opportunities offered now by the message they should be taking from their biggest customers for this system, that they're saying it's not working for them anymore. You're going to see a large number of drivers clutching close to their hearts, their FIA driver ranking, and you're going to see SRO, and I'm sure it's going to be the same with the ACO, LMEM, um, saying, that's all very well, Sunshine, but we're not going to respect that. At that point, the system's broken. Well done, FIA. You've left it a little too late. Now it's time to come up with a plan to claw that ground back or that system is going to disintegrate. Let's move on from uh, getting around. Let's go into IMSA, I think, next here, what? MP. Which I know. Um, it's my cue to start serving stuff at yourself. Dan Rice is going to be the first. He's asking a question about the future endurance racing at IMS in the in Indianapolis Motor Speedway and Sebring. And he says, question for you, Marshall. What are Penske's plans for sports cars at IMS? Is the eight-hour going to be a signature event for the Speedway? Is there still hope of bringing IMSA to town? Um, also says that given that IMSA makes three visits to the Midwest at Road America, Detroit, and Mid-Ohio, does Penske feel the need to get another race in the region, or is a proper endurance race outside the eastern seaboard a good draw? Well, great question, Dan. And, well, I feel stupid. I often feel stupid. Uh, rang RP Monday night, or Monday evening. There's a specific time window, he says, to call him in his office when he's available 
And so rang him, and to my surprise, he wasn't in the office, he was at dinner. And I had a whole list of questions for him, one of them being coming to what we might get to in a moment about Penske and LMP2 and, and testing of a, a new Areca at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Had been told by a source probably 10 days ago, no longer than that, maybe two weeks ago, that this most recent Tuesday, Graham, had been walled off private test, no anybody allowed, and it was going late to something like 10 p.m., well, yep. knowing that there are no tr- there's no trackside lighting, um, that's but that said sports car test. Also, who owns the track? Roger Penske, who's preparing to run a new program with Porsche. So, not saying that I knew it was Penske and something there specifically, but it certainly pointed to that. So, calling RP on Monday to say, "Hey, I believe you guys are testing tomorrow." I didn't get a chance to say those things because he was at dinner instead of in the office. And so I said, well, I appreciate you answering, but it's not that important. So I'll just ring you in the morning. Rang him in the morning, no answer. We actually didn't connect until yesterday, late, late in the day, um, after the test had run. And I hate to admit it, Dan, but of the many questions that I had uh, going on almost 10 p.m. his time, um, what is the future for sports cars at IMS was not on that list of questions. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of background to know that in terms of things that are important to RP, he could have gone to many places to do testing. Uh, the test did not remain secret. Um, folks figured out that you could go to the IMS museum, Graham, and while you weren't mm-hmm. allowed to go outside and spectate, some did, um, I even had a friend who sent me some video uh, who went there specifically for this. But regardless, I would just say take that, Dan, as a pretty strong message. RP could have gone to a number of road courses uh, far removed from town, folks hearing engines going during the day, during the night, drawing attention. Uh, His view of IMS being a place that is certainly worthy of sports cars, I think is demonstrated in inviting or accepting the, uh, call it almost track rental of SRO for the eight hour there, right? I mean, there were no fans, there were a couple, but I'm just saying it's not a huge, huge moneymaker, huge crowd related thing. Uh, in terms of prestige, not something that uh, polishes the uh, loving and, and burnished reputation of IMS, but He's certainly open and willing and deems it important enough to test his own cars there. So would I expect there to be a push to have IMSA there? Absolutely. Uh, It's not on next year's schedule, but do I think 2023? Also knowing that Penske will be there representing Porsche. uh, I would say if you do not pencil in, I don't know where on the calendar, very likely not before May's Indy 500, but if you were to pencil in a Indy X hour event, I don't know how many hours it might be, but some sort of meaningful IMSA race there with the new LMDH formula as the marquee and RP being one of the uh, presenters of that marquee through Porsche, all those things make a lot of sense. You mentioned Detroit. He promotes that, so that's his. Um, I don't know if Roger looks to 
the Midwest and saying, boy, uh, if we were to do that, IMSA would then have a lot of races clustered in or around the Midwest. Just think that this is something where from a marquee sports car opportunity, Graham, being able to do this at a track that he now owns, running cars that uh, he's responsible for, seems like a pretty big value add. Uh, assuming some really strong promotions can go with it and folks might care. So I see this as almost a, a no-brainer de facto prepare to go to Indy in 2023 for an IMSA race. And I think it would be more IMSA's call, Dan, than uh, Rogers about uh, how many races it holds in the Midwest. Good stuff. And uh, Hunter at AZ Sports Car 80 um, follows up with a question about Prototype Challenge. What do we know about Prototype Challenge, MP? Is that going to continue at IMSA? Have heard the... nothing to suggest that it wouldn't, Hunter. I know that we get that question every now and then. I can only refer to the last time I asked the question to IMSA, and it was framed around, you need entries. There aren't enough entries in the Weather Tech Championship. This is a fine way to solve that with whatever the number ends up being, but a handful of extra cars. Does it go away if you have a spike in entries in another class that looks somewhat sustainable? Also known as, if you solve your entry problem, does this prototype challenge class just get pushed back into uh, where it was before is nothing more than a feeder series and was told no. We have plans to do this for multiple years. Uh, we have no intent of evaluating after one year and potentially turning it off as a WeatherTech Championship class. I would say the answer provided on that also, Hunter, came from a place of we don't want to jerk around our entrance. If we mm -hmm. tell folks we're going to do this and the investment in the everything needed, the staff needed, equipment, you name it, it's certainly at a higher level for sure. Budgets are real for sure to do it at the WeatherTech Championship level. If we're going to ask entrants that are in uh, the uh, feeder series, IMSA Prototype Challenge or whatever exactly they call it, if we're going to ask them to step up or some other teams to step in, uh, boy, wouldn't we look like jerks if we just abandon it after one or two years because another class took off in popularity. So that's where I rest in confidence here that uh, we're going to have it for at minimum a couple of years, if not have it stay uh, stay a staple in the WeatherTech Championship, unless, of course, uh, what happened to GT Le Mans with just a handful of cars and it barely sustaining itself ends up happening uh, with LM these uh, LMP3-based, actually they aren't based, these pure LMP3 cars. Yeah, I mean, we've already had news of two additional entries for Petit Le Mans in the LMP3 class with the Fast MD Racing team set to make their debut in that race and Win Autosport bringing back their effort with the Ving Rao and a couple of talents from Europe. But there will be at least one more, I understand, uh, car coming from Europe, our European team, uh, to join Petit Le Mans LMP3 class and be interested to see just exactly what happens in LMP3 whether it's in challenge or whether or not it's in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship when we get into 2022. Hearing, hearing Graham uh, on the I mentioned GTLM and this may already be out there it may have, folks may have written stories about it, I have no idea uh, but I have heard that we might have six 
uh, GTLM entries for Petite with a two from Corvette oh, wow. expected, two from BMW. We know that there's the one season-long number 79 WeatherTech Racing Porsche. Uh, I've heard, and again, maybe I'm telling you old news, but I have heard that there will very likely be a second WeatherTech uh, Racing Porsche there. So in theory, Ooh. Corvette, Corvette, Porsche, Porsche, Bimmer, Bimmer. So uh, Gucci, Gucci, Prada. Uh, so yes, uh, maybe the farewell to GTLM uh, has a little bit of uh, real Noah's Ark feel of at least three marks to a piece. Well, there's uh, someone here in Portimao who could probably answer that question driving a WeatherTech-sponsored Porsche. What? Uh, so that might be a garage I trot along to and ask Kevin that question tomorrow morning. <laughs> uh, if only that were the case. Uh, but that, there we go. Um, Mark Lamont says... Uh, with the upcoming second edition of Super Sebring next March, what lap time difference do MP and GG think there'll be between the IMSA P2 cars and the WC P2 cars, given the WC cars have to run the low downforce body kits? There's another difference, remember, which is there's a difference in tyres. T-Y-R-E-S. Uh, indeed. Uh, that would be the IMSA WeatherTech uh, Sports Car Championship cars, of course, on Michelin rubber. And the spec tyre for... The WEC teams is Goodyear. So there's two major points of difference there. Honest answer is, I have absolutely no clue is the is the real uh, answer there. It's not other than... 1.7. Let's just say a number because <laughs> uh, although 0. we 6. don't have BOP information for what might get used, I realize it's a spec class. I realize BOP bad, but... We know, at least in terms of class speed separation or otherwise, uh, there's been a willingness to manipulate uh, classes to speed them up or slow them down here in America and maybe even elsewhere. So really hard to say or how to answer, my friend. Uh, In October of 2021, uh, when we're referring to an event in March of 2022. So um, yes, and even if we had that info, I don't even know if I could give you uh, 1.1, 1. 1, uh, 0.4. A ah. um, couple more. A difference. A couple of three more, in fact. Uh, Rafael Diaz-Lehman says, what's the future of the Super Sebring weekend with both WEC and IMSA converging on regulations with Hypercar and LMDH? And potentially, it says GT3 Pro. Uh, no GT3 Pro in WEC, I'll tell you that much. That's it's Pro-Am for the GT class moving forward. Surely it would be pointless, says Rafael, to run what seemed two identical races back-to-back like that. Ignoring the point about the GT3 cars, and there will be two different classes there, GTD will be equivalent to the WEX forthcoming 2024 um, GT3 base class. GTD Pro will be at a higher level, um, one would presume. It's a fair question. Uh, we've talked before, haven't we? On, on Graham, I don't mean to, well, actually, I guess I do mean to interrupt you and I apologize. <laughs> it's the day where everyone wants to deliver things, uh, in the middle of us recording. So we did get to the majority of the IMSA questions. There's one about Corvette splitting its efforts between IMSA and the WC next year. Uh, yep. yes, I have indeed heard that that could very well be the plan, uh, we'll save a deeper discussion on that for next week because if that does happen, uh, that's shady, 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 shady. And I'll tell you why I think that. But 
in the best interest of getting the show recorded, knowing that it's getting to be late and you need to put on your pajamas and go get some good sports car oh, sleep. Um, well, why don't we hit the pause or the end button here on IMSA? I'll hit the marker for you with WEC. And you may actually wrap the show before it's done. And uh, I'll just have to come back and realize that you hung up and there's dead air in the recording, which is fine. But why don't you take us home with uh, the WC, ACO, ELMS, whatever else. And again, if you get the end of that, just go ahead and close the show and I'll finish it up later. And much love to you. And thanks everyone for listening. And this is a part where I both shut up, hit a marker and hit mute. The end for me. All good, and that 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 is uh, Marshall with the domestic essentials uh, that have got to be uh, got to be attended to in Marshall's family circumstance, which most of our listeners are fully well aware of. So let's have a look at some of the Warehouse Lemons, Elms, and Aco uh, questions. We already covered off a lot of the the what we know already about the Penske. Uh, test of an LMP2 Orica IMS, but Chris Ward asks a further question. Hashtag me personally said, Team Penske running an Orica struck him as odd considering Porsche is running Multimatic at LMDH, just prepping for 2022 or something more there. It's the former. It's as simple as that. If you're going to come and run an LMP2 car in the WEC, the reality is, if you're looking to be competitive, the reality is at the moment, it's an Orica. Um, some interesting figures, by the way, uh, garnered from a a good friend at Orica. We've got Hugh Dishonak at Portimao with his new technical director, uh, replacing David Flory here this weekend. Just bumped into uh, to, uh, Hugh just before I left the track this evening. Um, and some extraordinary numbers of those Orica 07s uh, production numbers, high 80s at the moment and going beyond that into the middle of next year. Uh, so they're looking to make a competitive show with that Orica. Um, there is no point in coming with sad reflection that it simply is not at that kind of level with a Riley Multimatic. There is no doubt either, though, that uh, there's no change in the plans for what's going to happen with Penske and Porsche. That is a Multimatic uh, program uh, that is very live at the moment and uh, no change there. It's simply a matter of getting a team built up and revved up for the competition to come. Uh, Ryan Terpstra asks, any idea who drove the Penske Orica on IMS? Uh, as you'll see if you've read Marshall's story on Racer, I uh, suggest you do because it's the only one uh, out there where anybody has managed to speak to uh, Roger Penske personally and makes it very clear that uh, they're not going to be revealing who is driving that car uh, at this particular point. Um, we believe uh, Porsche factory drivers involved in that test. And Demi Impeachment says which driver silver which silver rated drivers would Porsche and Penske be looking for next year in LMP2 should they enter? Well, there's an awful lot of young drivers linked in with Porsche and not a few linked in with Penske who might well be on the list that uh, Roger and his lieutenants um, might be uh, putting a call into, or I'm sure by now will have put a call into, and who's to say that they've not been involved in whether it's sim work, whether it's on-track work with that car. Uh, moving forward, uh, Matt, Matty Hawkins, 96, says, so you're the Le Mans Selection Committee. Who do you take out the running in LMP2 to accommodate the LMP2? H LMD uh, the LMD Huskies. Who do you think is still close to confirming an entrant to either class? Lots of things coming together at the moment, and one of the things coming together right now is the realization that a lot of people 
who believe they might be close to a factory deal in LMDH in particular aren't. They've then got the decision to make. Do we push uh, to bridge that gap with a privateer effort in 2023 in the top class? Or do we ride this out for a year, maybe two years in LMP2 and come out punching again? And I think the reality is a number of them will be doing the latter. Uh, we've said before, stand by it. I think there's going to be a small number of privateer efforts in the top class in year one. There are going to be probably a larger number, but not a huge number of privateers in the top class across IMSA and WEC in year two. Um, but we're also expecting another wave, if you like, of OEMs to come into uh, the top class, particularly probably the LMDH ranks. And the more people you talk to in the teams, the rule makers, the, sh the manufacturers, that's what we're now hearing is that they are expecting and that you can guess that therefore they're fielding interest from another uh, number of manufacturers. Lamborghini, we know. Uh, we've talked about that ad infinitum on the weekend sports cars. McLaren, we know, and it's absolutely a fact that they are in active search for a uh, engine supplier for their LMDH, which will not be with us before 2024. Uh, and then you've got you know, which teams, and I think you're going to find as many, if not more teams in the GT ranks, GTE ranks, uh, that will be looking to see what they can do to nail down uh, a prototype program uh, in the top class, uh, as you will from the LMP2 ranks. The big thing about those LMP2 teams, remember, they are solidly pro-am uh, operations. You're moving into a top class overall uh uh, for, for overall competition, full pro from the factory teams with one class as far as we're aware at the moment. Are you basically going to be spending two, almost three times the money to expect a silver ranked or a bronze ranked driver to accept the fact that success looks like 12th? Or are you trying to persuade those people or a different group of people to help you to raise that money and stand and watch pros race the car that you're paying for. It's a completely different business model, and those realities are very real at the moment for some very big players on both sides of the pond looking for where their future might lie in what is still a very exciting era. Uh, looking a bit further down here, uh, Chris Mock says, any news regarding major redesigns of the Groots? I know this came out after some initial concerns that there might be some uh, issues around the, the GRO 10. Well, didn't seem that did it at uh, Le Mans. They were quick, quicker than most expected them to be, including all their competition. I suspect the rule makers as well. So no reason for uh, any dramas there. Um, I think they sold as a dummy. It's a straight answer there. Not the first time Toyota have done that. Uh, the the uh, car absolutely is unchanged from the homologated version that it started the season with. Uh, as with all of the uh, LMHs, it has one adjustable uh, component rear wing in the case of the GR010. Uh, Alan Russell Paris says, what's the budget to run LMP2 in ELMS today? Do we think with the right measures in place, it could be possible for them to adopt LMDH as a top class, replacing LMP2 and keeping it close to the same budget? Answer to the second part is no, LMDH will be more expensive. ELMS, he says, puts on a great product, but wouldn't it be even better with some car and brand diversity in the top class? 
if LMDH in particular ta- takes off in the next three, four years in the way that we hope it will, there's an inevitability that the Continental Championships will pick up, whether or not it's privateer only, uh, as a new top class, I'm sure of that. On the question about the budgets, um, budget, it's difficult to, to really nail it at the moment, Alan, because, of course, we're in a period, certainly with WEC, where we're not back to a full season calendar. In a full season year, €4 million Euro, uh, for a uh, LMP2 program. A little less than that for a full season LMS plus Le Mans, which, of course, for most teams is the objective. If you're looking for what that might be in uh, LMDH, I can only give you the figure that was given to me by none other than Pierre Fion in answer to a direct question at the start of the year. Privateer LMDH between 5 and 10 million. So you're looking for anywhere between 25% increase and more than double, depending on one would presume which car, what program, uh, how you pull that together, and, and how this crazy thing actually all uh, pans out. So the answer there is that's a big, big uptick uh, for those uh, those teams to be trying to address in a short period of time, and in particular in challenging financial times for very many people. So you know, we wait and we see what will emerge from the current carnage really uh, around the financial world um let's have a quick look jacques creton uh says just saw several posts from at glickenhouse on twitter and elsewhere showing the 708 and 709 cars arrival at their shop in the u.s will these two chassis participate in the 2022 fiwc championship last time i spoke to jim uh, the answer was he's actively looking for the package that will secure at least a part season. There's some issues around Sebring. Uh, as many of you be aware, Jim is in some, um, how can we put this, conflict with IMSA and their um, their outlook on whether or not Clickenhouse qualifies against their rules for uh, competing. He'd love to bring his cars, of course, to the Rolex 24 Daytona. Um, he's in some strife with that uh, that row, let's call it that, with IMSA. On that basis, Sebring very much in doubt, doesn't want to effectively support an event that is effectively an IMSA event, has every intention, should the budgets come together, of uh, seeing those cars uh, for at least a part season of the uh, FI World Endurance Championship uh, next year. Uh, what else? How, Damien Peachman asks, how's the grid looking for WEC next year? Uh, well, we, we know the Alpine looks like it's going to be back. We hope the Glickenhouse is going to be back. We wait and find out when the Burgos will be ready to join the fun in 2022. There's no committed date for those yet. Toyota clearly back in the uh, top class. So potential uptick in numbers for Hypercar as we transit towards 2023 when the LMDHs and the Ferrari LMHs, of course, arrive. Uh, LMP2, I expect to see a significant uptick uh, in the numbers there into double figures. Not well, well into double figures, but I think into low double figures for LMP2. Uh, I expect, we've uh, talked about the potential for Corvette to look at a program in the WEC, I expect to see an uptick in GTE Pro. And I think, uh, well, I know uh, at the moment teams are being told uh, 
and more than one team being told there is not space on the grid. WEC appears to be oversubscribed for the 2022 season, uh, which is good news for everybody other than the people not being able to find a wide there. Why? Lots of reasons. I think we are coming into an exciting new era. There's lots of people looking for an opportunity to show what they've got in what they hope is going to be an open marketplace. But the other reason to look at, particularly for the pro-am teams, is it's, we hope, the last year of a restricted calendar for the FIWC, which means it's cheaper. It's an accessible, more accessible financial way into the WEC for anybody that wants to bring a car that is relevant to the Le Mans 24 hours. So it's, if you like, in the easiest terms, cheaper than it's going to be in the near future for anybody in a program car that wants to be assured that they will be going to the Le Mans 24 hours. That's another reason why it's going to be an interesting time for LMP2 and for GTE AM teams to come with that. Um, Damien also asked some questions about Asia Le Mans series and uh, Bathurst dates. So I think we'll wait and see what happens with those Bathurst dates. Um, we know it's not going to stick uh, as being a clash. Uh, I think it will be more of a challenge potentially for people who want to do Asia Le Mans series and Bathurst with the same uh, material. Um, and we're just going to have to wait and see just exactly where that race lands before we know what the, the issues are going to be. We'll finish with Sean Crockett. And Sean says, do you think there's any chance of the WEC or the LMS coming back to the UK in the next few years? The answer is, of course, there's a chance. Um, had the confirmation uh, from Pierre Fion in my latest conversation with himself and uh, Frederick Lequien, the CEO of the LMEM, that there are a number of reasons why that's not the case. Um, the reasons they were prepared to offer were around health controls uh, most recently, and of course, the border controls about Brexit, as we've discussed ad infinitum on this show. Uh, but other reasons I know have included a bit of a, uh, a block between the commercial aspirations of the race organisers and the commercial aspirations of the tracks, in this case, Silverstone. Uh, I think uh, there, there were not constructive negotiations the last time those parties sat down and talked about it. Sean, do I think we could get back to the stage where they come back? Yes, I do. I think we're a couple of years away from that yet. Um, and I hope, like I'm sure you do, that that will be the case. Uh, what we're not going to do is to play the blame game. Um, what I hope we're going to do is to get to the stage where sensible people with a huge and enthusiastic marketplace for sports car racing can find a way back from the chaos that some of the parties involved and some of the parties externally have combined and conspired to create, um, unfortunately, to the misfortune of sports car fans in, in my own home nation. So I hope we can get back there. No other direct news other than uh, there's no doubt in my mind, because uh, it's mentioned every time I talk to them, um, we hope we can come back uh, from LMEM and from uh, the uh, and from the uh, the ACO masters, if you like, of international sports car racing. SRO already do with uh, Brands Hatch, but I know too that Silverstone has previously been an event that's been a favourite with the competitors, even if perhaps that event has not been well supported by uh, trackside uh, fans in terms of the numbers that I've heard, uh, not from the fans themselves, but from SRO, 
And indeed, I think they've been disappointed at times with the response that Silverstone have given in terms of their uh, willingness and ability to help the push to make that a bigger event than it, it has been previously. With MP still um, off mic and uh, assisting in uh, the ongoing matters at uh, the Pruitt household, it's going to left to me to say thanks to Marshall Pruitt. In particular, thanks to you guys putting in the questions week in uh, week out. Thanks to our new question compiler from last week and continuing on now, uh, Daniel Summerskill. Thanks, Daniel, for turning this around so promptly. Um, and we're, we're looking to get this onto an even keel in terms of a time frame for the weekend sports cars after all sorts of challenges. Um, it's time to say thank you, of course, to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsport.com for their continued support for this enterprise. This has been the Week in Sports Cars with me, Graham Goodwin, with him, Marshall Pruitt. It's part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast product, and we will be with you again next week. Good night.